The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar The Mysterious Traveler The evening before, I had sent my automobile to Rouen by the highway. I was to travel to Rouen by rail on my way to visit some friends that live on the banks of the Seine. At Paris, a few minutes before the train started, seven gentlemen entered my compartment. Five of them were smoking. No matter that the journey was a short one, the thought of traveling with such a company was not agreeable to me, especially as the car was built on the old model, without a corridor. I picked up my overcoat, my newspapers, and my timetable, and sought refuge in a neighboring compartment. It was occupied by a lady who, at sight of me, made a gesture of annoyance that did not escape my notice, and she leaned toward a gentleman who was standing on the step and was, no doubt, her husband. The gentleman scrutinized me closely, and apparently my appearance did not displease him, for he smiled as he spoke to his wife with the air of one who reassures a frightened child. She smiled also, and gave me a friendly glance, as if she now understood that I was one of those gallant men with whom a woman can remain shut up for two hours in a little box, six feet square, and have nothing to fear. Her husband said to her, I have an important appointment, my dear, and cannot wait any longer. Adieu. He kissed her affectionately and went away. His wife threw him a few kisses and waved her handkerchief. The whistle sounded, and the train started. At that precise moment, and despite the protests of the guards, the door was opened and a man rushed into our compartment. My companion, who was standing and arranging her luggage, uttered a cry of terror and fell upon the seat. I am not a coward, far from it, but I confess that such intrusions at the last minute are always disconcerting. They have a suspicious, unnatural aspect. However, the appearance of the new arrival greatly modified the unfavorable impression produced by his precipitate action. He was correctly and elegantly dressed, wore a tasteful cravat, correct gloves, and his face was refined and intelligent. But where the devil had I seen that face before? Because beyond all possible doubt I had seen it. And yet the memory of it was so vague and indistinct that I felt it would be useless to try to recall it at that time. Then, directing my attention to the lady, I was amazed at the pallor and anxiety I saw in her face. She was looking at her neighbor, they occupied seats on the same side of the compartment, with an expression of intense alarm, and I perceived that one of her trembling hands was slowly gliding toward a little travel bag that was lying on the seat about twenty inches from her. She finished by seizing it and nervously drawing it to her. Our eyes met, and I read in hers so much anxiety and fear that I could not refrain from speaking to her. "'Are you ill, madame? Shall I open the window?' Her only reply was a gesture indicating that she was afraid of our companion. I smiled, as her husband had done, shrugged my shoulders, and explained to her, in pantomime, that she had nothing to fear, that I was there, and besides, the gentleman appeared to be a very harmless individual. At that moment, he turned toward us, scrutinized both of us from head to foot, then settled down in his corner and paid us no more attention. 
After a short silence, the lady, as if she had mustered all her energy to perform a desperate act, said to me in an almost inaudible voice, Do you know who is on our train? Who? He, he, I assure you. Who is he? Arsene Lupin. She had not taken her eyes off our companion, and it was to him rather than to me that she uttered the syllables of that disquieting name. He drew his hat over his face. Was that to conceal his agitation or simply to arrange himself for sleep? Then I said to her, Yesterday, through contumacy, Arsene Lupin was sentenced to twenty years' imprisonment at hard labor. Therefore it is improbable that he would be so imprudent today as to show himself in public. Moreover, the newspapers have announced his appearance in Turkey since his escape from the Santé. But he is on this train at the present moment, the lady proclaimed, with the obvious intention of being heard by our companion. My husband is one of the directors in the penitentiary service, and it was the stationmaster himself who told us that a search was being made for Arsène Lupin. They may have been mistaken. No, he was seen in the waiting room. He bought a first-class ticket for Rouen, but then he disappeared. The guard at the waiting room door did not see him pass, and it is supposed that he got into the express that leaves ten minutes after us. In that case, they will be sure to catch him. Unless, at the last moment, he leaped from that train to come here into our train, which is quite probable, which is almost certain. If so, he will be arrested just the same, for the employees and the guards will no doubt observe his passage from one train to the other, and when we arrive at Rouen, they will arrest him there. Him? Never. He will find some means of escape. In that case, I wish him bon voyage. But in the meantime, think what he may do. What? I don't know. He may do anything. She was greatly agitated, and truly the situation justified, to some extent, her nervous excitement. I was impelled to say to her, Of course there are many strange coincidences, but you need have no fear. Admitting that Arsène Lupin is on this train, he will not commit any indiscretion. He will be only too happy to escape the peril that already threatens him. My words did not reassure her, but she remained silent for a time. I unfolded my newspapers and read reports of Arsène Lupin's trial, but, as they contained nothing that was new to me, I was not greatly interested. Moreover, I was tired and sleepy. I felt my eyelids close and my head drop. Monsieur, you are not going to sleep. She seized my newspaper and looked at me with indignation. Certainly not, I said. That would be very imprudent. Of course, I assented. I struggled to keep awake. I looked through the window at the landscape and the fleeting clouds, but in a short time all that became confused and indistinct. The image of the nervous lady and the drowsy gentleman were effaced from my memory, and I was buried in the soothing depths of a profound sleep. The tranquility of my repose was soon disturbed by disquieting dreams, wherein a creature that had played the part and bore the name of Arsène Lupin held an important place. He appeared to me with his back laden with articles of value, he leaped over walls and plundered castles. But the outlines of that creature who was no longer Arsène Lupin, assumed a more definite form. He came toward me, growing larger and larger, leaped into the compartment with incredible agility, and landed squarely on my chest. With a cry of fright and pain, I awoke. The man, the traveler, our companion, with his knee on my breast, held me by the throat.
My sight was very indistinct, for my eyes were suffused with blood. I could see the lady in a corner of the compartment convulsed with fright. I did not even try to resist. Besides, I did not have the strength. My temples throbbed. I was almost strangled. One minute more and I would have breathed my last. The man must have realized it, for he relaxed his grip but did not remove his hand. Then he took a cord in which he had prepared a slip knot and tied my wrists together. In an instant, I was bound, gagged, and helpless. Certainly, he accomplished the trick with an ease and skill that revealed the hand of a master. He was, no doubt, a professional thief. Not a word, not a nervous movement, only coolness and audacity. And I was there, lying on the bench, bound like a mummy. I, Arsène Lupin. It was anything but a laughing matter, and yet, despite the gravity of the situation, I keenly appreciated the humor and irony that it involved. Arsène Lupin seized and bound like a novice, robbed as if I were an unsophisticated rustic. For you must understand, the scoundrel had deprived me of my purse and wallet. Arsène Lupin, a victim, duped, vanquished. What an adventure. The lady did not move. He did not even notice her. He contented himself with picking up her traveling bag that had fallen to the floor and taking from it the jewels, purse, and gold and silver trinkets that it contained. The lady opened her eyes, trembled with fear, drew the rings from her fingers, and handed them to the man as if she wished to spare him unnecessary trouble. He took the rings and looked at her. She swooned. Then, quite unruffled, he resumed his seat, lit a cigarette, and proceeded to examine the treasures that he had acquired. The examination appeared to give him perfect satisfaction. But I was not so well satisfied. I do not speak of the 12,000 francs of which I had been unduly deprived. That was only a temporary loss, because I was certain that I would recover possession of that money after a very brief delay, together with the important papers contained in my wallet, plans, specifications, addresses, lists of correspondence, and compromising letters. But for the moment, a more immediate and more serious question troubled me. How would this affair end? What would be the outcome of this adventure? As you can imagine, the disturbance created by my passage through the Salazar station had not escaped my notice. Going to visit friends who knew me under the name of Guillaume Berla, and amongst whom my resemblance to Arsène Lupin was a subject of many innocent jests, I could not assume a disguise, and my presence had been remarked. So, beyond question, the commissary of police at Rouen, notified by telegraph and assisted by numerous agents, would be awaiting the train, would question all suspicious passengers, and proceed to search the cars. Of course I had foreseen all that, but it had not disturbed me, as I was certain that the police of Rouen would not be any shrewder than the police of Paris, and that I could escape recognition. Would it not be sufficient for me to carelessly display my card as député, thanks to which I had inspired complete confidence in the gatekeeper at Saint-Lazare? But the situation was greatly changed. I was no longer free. It was impossible to attempt one of my usual tricks. In one of the compartments, the commissary of police would find Monsieur Arsène Lupin, bound hand and foot, as docile as a lamb, packed up, all ready to be dumped into a prison van. He would have simply to accept a delivery of the parcel, the same as if it were so much merchandise or a basket of fruit and vegetables. Yet, to avoid that shameful denouement, what could I do? bound and gagged as I was, and the train was rushing on towards Rouen, the next and only station. 
Another problem was presented, in which I was less interested, but the solution of which aroused my professional curiosity. What were the intentions of my rascally companion? Of course, if I had been alone, he could, on our arrival at Rouen, leave the car slowly and fearlessly. But the lady? As soon as the door of the compartment should be opened, the lady, now so quiet and humble, would scream and call for help. That was the dilemma that perplexed me. Why had he not reduced her to a helpless condition similar to mine? That would have given him ample time to disappear before his double crime was discovered. He was still smoking, with his eyes fixed upon the window that was now being streaked with drops of rain. Once he turned, picked up my timetable, and consulted it. The lady had to feign a continued lack of consciousness in order to deceive the enemy, but fits of coughing provoked by the smoke exposed her true condition. As to me, I was very uncomfortable and very tired. And I meditated. I plotted. The train was rushing on, joyously, intoxicated with its own speed. At that moment, the man arose and took two steps toward us, which caused the lady to utter a cry of alarm and fall into a genuine swoon. What was the man about to do? He lowered the window on our side. A heavy rain was now falling, and, by a gesture, the man expressed his annoyance at his not having an umbrella or an overcoat. He glanced at the rack. The lady's umbrella was there. He took it. He also took my overcoat and put it on. We were now crossing the Seine. He turned up the bottoms of his trousers, then leaned over and raised the exterior latch of the door. Was he going to throw himself upon the track? At that speed, it would have been instant death. We now entered a tunnel. The man opened the door halfway and stood on the upper step. What folly! The darkness, the smoke, the noise all gave a fantastic appearance to his actions. But suddenly, the train diminished its speed. A moment later, it increased its speed, then slowed up again. Probably some repairs were being made in that part of the tunnel, which obliged the trains to diminish their speed, and the man was aware of this fact. He immediately stepped down to the lower step, closed the door behind him, and leaped to the ground. He was gone.